Well, good morning. Let's see. Got a few people that are under the age of sixth grade, sixth grade and going into sixth grade and younger. So uh, what we're doing over the summer is we're asking you some questions related to last week's sermon. So I don't know if any of you kids were in church last Sunday, but I just have two questions, and if any of you can guess the right answer, then I have a Culver's ice cream token for you. I know. So you ready for this? Here's the first question, and I want to see a show of hands. Don't just blurt out the answer. Who preached last Sunday? Anyone? Paul knows. His name rhymes with, oh, do you know? Very good, Pastor Brian. Nice job. And I got one more. This one's tougher. This one you may not get, and if you don't get it, we'll just have to save it for the second hour. But I'll tell you this, that um, if you have those outlines that you get from the, um, what are they called, little packets that you bring in here, you hand that into the children's ministry thing, and, and uh, that goes in for a nice little drawing. I think when Promised Land starts up again, they're going to be handing other stuff out. So kids, fill out that outline and then get it to the children's ministry desk afterwards. If you don't have one, the activity bags, that's what they're called, are right outside the door over there. So uh, the second question is, Pastor Brian told us to pray for something that you would think, I don't want to pray for that. Ugh. You remember what he said to pray for? I know, it's a tough one. Just think of something that you probably wouldn't really want to pray for, but he was saying, as he was dealing, he was, I'll give you a little hint, and I'll even maybe sort of really give you a big hint. So, you know, this isn't really fun. This isn't fun at all, but you should pray. What? I'm going to take it. She said pray for suffering. It's pray for trials, but that is good so that you can be a witness for Jesus. Nice job. Well, speaking of trials and suffering and hardships, I want to tell you one of the scariest moments that I had in high school. I was, uh, I think I was a sophomore at this time, uh, and uh, you got to remember I went to Franklin High School, and back in the day when I was there, all white high school, and I got a perm. I showed you a picture of my perm along the way. So I had a perm, and uh, I put a pick in my hair, and it was kind of sticking out the top. I was kind of strutting down the hallway, and this guy that I had never seen before comes out of a room, and uh, he catches my attention. Now, just get this. He's older than me. He's got an army jacket on, and he says, hey, you acting like a, and he used the N-word for African-American, and of course it stunned me, and I turned, and then he pulls out of his army coat a handgun, and he points it at my head, and he pulls back the hammer, and he says, this is what I do to, and he used the N-word again. What would you do if you were me? I was stunned. I was frozen. I was, I, I just stared down the barrel of a gun. And then he 
put the gun back in his coat, and he says, get out of here. And of course, my friend who was with me and I bolted out of there. And I was going to gym class, and I was all shaken up. And my friend that was with me told the gym teacher, and the gym teacher immediately brought me to the office. And uh, the, the principal had a yearbook, and he had me go through the yearbook and identify the person who had pulled a gun on me. And in this day and age of uh, you know, social media, I'll just give you his first name. His first name was Steve. And uh, <clears throat> I pointed him out, and um, the principal called my mom, and, and she came and got me, and I stayed home, and he told her everything that had happened. And, and then um, uh, it wasn't too many days later that I got called to go down to the city of Milwaukee to testify before Steve and his parents and the district attorney about what had taken place in the high school when I was there. And I want to tell you, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go. I didn't, I didn't want to stand before the guy who pulled that gun on me and stand before the court as a 15-year-old kid and say exactly what happened. And I remember my mom and my dad. They said, Jeremy, you have to be brave. You have to tell them what happened. So despite how afraid I was, we went down to Milwaukee County Courthouse and I testified before the district attorney with Steve and his parents standing right there exactly what went down that day when I was in high school. You ever have a time in your life when you were called on to be brave? We're kind of taught when we're little that you know, you can be brave. Like, like when you're a little kid and you're standing on the edge of the pool and your dad's in the water and he's got his arms out, come on, jump to me, be brave, you can do it. And you kind of muster up all that you can have and then finally you, you jump into the water. You, you just kind of build that courage, you can do it and you jump in. Or I remember when I was little, I, all the way through till like sixth grade, I played little league baseball and uh, I, I mean, tee ball is fine. You know, you set a, tee, a ball on a tee and you just kind of hit the ball off the tee. No big deal. But once you move from tee ball to pitch, I mean, these people that are not too far away are whipping a ball at you and you're supposed to stay in the batter's box. You know, you're supposed to stay and watch that ball come zinging right at you and give it all you got and smack that ball with a bat. You, that's like, you got to be brave to stay there. Then you're in school, you know, and, and all of a sudden you have an assignment that you, have to, uh, that, you, that you have to give a little speech in front of your class. Well, all your friends are staring at you, and you've got to actually stand up there and talk in front of people. You've got to be like, like brave, you know. And then all throughout life, there are moments, there are times when we find ourselves having to be brave. There are other times when you have to be brave over an extended period of time. You know, you're battling some sort of an illness and you just got to hang in there. Or, um, you know, life all of a sudden doesn't go as you had planned and you're living it in a way that you're like, wait, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, maybe a, maybe a divorce that you didn't want to go through or, may, or maybe it was your kid is all of a sudden in trouble and you're like, wait, I... I I didn't want to have to deal with this, but I'm dealing with it. Or, 
Or maybe you get laid off and that kind of came unexpected. Now you've got to figure out how to make ends meet. I mean, you know, there, there are extended times in life when we have to be brave. All throughout our life, here and there, and sometimes over a long period of time, we find ourselves needing to stay in the batter's box knowing that we've just got to have the courage to face whatever we're facing. Every single one of us will experience these times and we'll have to have an extra measure of bravery. So this morning, I want to introduce us to a guy in the Old Testament who was brave over and over again. His name was Nehemiah. Now, he lived five centuries before Jesus came on the scene. Five centuries before Jesus was born. And over the next nine weeks, I would like to take us through a book that he penned and is written is uh, titled after his name, the book of Nehemiah. And I would like to, us to see what he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and figure out what this hero of a man, what was inside of him? What, what, what was it about him that he was really a guy of such great courage, of such great bravery? And I want us to learn how we too can live a life without fear. I mean, we can sing about it. I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I think all of us face fears of many kinds. So I want to set the stage. Nehemiah was what's called a cupbearer. He was the cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes. Now, a cupbearer was the guy who was always with the king. He was a guy who cupbearer meant he would actually sip the wine before the king got it, just in case someone poisoned the wine. He would make sure that the food was not poisoned. The, the king, King Artaxerxes, who by the way was the son of Xerxes, and Xerxes was married to Esther, along with other wives that he had. But Esther and Xerxes' uh, time period, this is the next generation after them. He, uh, so Nehemiah was the cupbearer. He was, he was the right-hand man of, of King Artaxerxes. Well-trusted, a lot of influence. And, uh, and this guy, uh, Nehemiah, probably wrote his book in around 420 B.C. Because Artaxerxes lived from uh, 464 B.C., or he reigned from 464 B.C., and he died of natural causes in 424 B.C. And I think Nehemiah, I know, well, I'm pretty confident, Nehemiah wrote this letter then, or this book, about just after Artaxerxes' death. So, if you have a Bible handy, I say we dive right in. Enough chit-chat about it, huh? Let's, let's see what, what the book of Nehemiah is all about. And and uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, it goes Ezra, Nehemiah, then Esther. And if you keep going, you'll end up in the, Psalm, or in the Psalms. So it's before the Psalms, um, before Job, before Esther, and then all of a sudden you find the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, says this, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, by the way, it's the only thing we know about his dad. It's just that he's mentioned here. Nobody knows anything more about him. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, by the way, that would be the 20th year of Artaxerxes, so we're looking at 444 B.C., just so that we kind of get our bearings here. And the month of Chislev, Chislev 
is one of the months of the Babylonian calendar. Nine months uh, are in the Babylonian calendar. And so he's, he's talking about the Babylonian calendar here. So we're looking at November, December-ish here. Uh, it happened now in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. Now, again, this is all laying the groundwork, just kind of get our bearings here. Let me help us understand where he was in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. I have a map here for us of the Middle East. And uh, you can kind of get your bearings there. You see the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah, you're zooming in here. We'll zoom in one more, and I'll point out to you where Susa is. Here is Susa. It's on the western border of modern-day Iran. It's uh, just over here is where Babylon is, and then over here is where Jerusalem is. So you just kind of get, get an idea of where we're talking. He is over here. Nehemiah is over here in Susa. All right? Back to our text. It happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, so now this is his biological brother, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. These Jews uh, were in exile. These Jews were actually first conquered in 605 B.C. by the Babylonian Empire. And the famous guy that we know that was taken way back then was Daniel the, the, the prophet. And so so uh, here he's about 150 years later that he's talking about this, that they're still in exile. And verse 3, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. You know, although Nehemiah was working for the king of Persia, his heart really was for the Jewish people, his brothers and sisters. He wondered how, how they were doing. Even before his brother came to report and the guys with him, he wondered what their situation was. And their situation couldn't have been worse. It was in, they were in dire straits. And yet, this is what's set up for us to see, this is what sets it up for us to see the great courage of this man, Nehemiah. You see, first of all, the first thing we'll see in your outline, which is in the middle now of your bulletin if you want to take notes with me. You see, first of all, courage of the deepest kind is generated by wanting to right wrongs. Courage of the deepest, there's a bunch of different ways that we can experience courage. I mean, you know, we can have courage to give a speech. We can have courage to stand in the batter's box. We can have courage to, to do these event type things. But courage of the deepest kind comes from knowing and seeing and understanding something that's not right and then saying to ourselves, I'm not going to stand on the sidelines any longer. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to do what I can. I've got to do something. I can't just let this guy get off with bringing a gun to school and pointing it at me. I've got to do something. I can't just let my husband abuse our kids. I've got to do something. I can't just let this cancer take over. I've got to fight it. I've got to do something. And in the face of fear, we act. You know, one of the great myths, I think, about us, particularly as Americans, but maybe it's all of mankind. 
I think we might see ourselves as these rugged, tough individuals that can just handle it. I mean, when we think about courage, we think, well, I have like the courage of George Washington. Remember when he crossed the Delaware? Remember this picture? Or I have the curiosity of Davy Crockett. Remember Davy Crockett? Davy, Davy Crockett. Exactly, king of the wild frontier. The guy that just, you know, he gets out there and he's going where no European has ever gone before kind of a thing. And we think of ourselves, I have the capability of Superman and Wonder Woman all combined into one. I can black bullets and I can, you know, whatever a locomotive and a single bound over a building. What does he do with the locomotive? Faster, thank you. I'm like, it's there. It just can't. Anyway, yeah. Reality is we're more probably, we could probably honestly more identify with the guy named Gulliver. Remember Gulliver of Gulliver's Travels? <laughs> Tied down by all these tiny little immobilizing strings. And every one of those strings for us can be labeled fear. Fear. Fear immobilizes us. People just stand on the sidelines and watch as somebody else is hurt in some way, abused, or, or even worse. Fear can show up in a way that, that we live, lies, live a life of lies and dysfunction. And we're too afraid to actually address it and change because... Well, I mean, what if we're exposed for who we really are? What if we're rejected in some way? We won't address real stuff because we're afraid. There's these little strings that hold us down that make us afraid. We can talk the big talk, you know. But in all honesty, we often lack the courage to fight for what's right in the midst of all the things that are wrong. Courage, bravery, is in short supply these days because we have got to stare down some of our deepest fears and decide for the sake of righting wrongs where we'll say, I am not going to stand on the sidelines any longer. I'm going to do something about this. So how do we go about doing something? How do we ensure that we're doing the right thing when we're addressing wrongs in our world? Well, I, I think we do as Nehemiah did. We follow his example. And what Nehemiah did was that the first act of courage for us ought to be prayer. The first act of courage, when we see a wrong that we know needs to be righted, the first thing we must do is pray. Look at verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You feel the emotion in Nehemiah here? Days. Deep. Sorrow. And what does he do? He fasts and he prays. 
Fasting. Something we don't talk about very often. Fasting. When, when, when things are heavy, when they're intense, when we're intense about something, when we're really moved deep in our hearts, a way to express that intensity, a way to express our emotions to God is through fasting. Abstaining. Fasting means to abstain from eating. Stop eating for 24, 48, 72, whatever the number is of hours as you just go before God with what's on our hearts. Expressing our longings to the Lord. Nehemiah was torn up inside when he heard about the plight of the Jewish people and Jerusalem. And the first thing that he did was he didn't like dive into action. Oh, I heard this terrible thing. I've got to get over there. I've got to help. He didn't say, you know what? We've got to do something. We just have to figure this out. We've got to just go, go, go. Here, let's lay out a plan. Let's make sure that we get this done. No, the first thing that he did was, okay, I have to first pray. I have to first pray. And I think we can learn from Nehemiah. I, I see four things that he prayed for that I think would help us. First of all, make sure that God is in His proper place. In our hearts and in our minds, make sure that we make sure that God is where He, he needs to be for us. Look at verse 5. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Alright, okay, I, I realize things are really not the way they should be. I realize that the world around me, there's a lot of wrongs going on. I see some terrible things around me. But God, I'm going to first of all just remind myself of who You are. How great You are. How even when things seem to be falling apart, You're not falling apart. How th when things seem to not be right, You're still right. And You're good. And You're kind. And You're loving. And then he goes on in verse 6. Let your ear now be attentive to your, uh, and your eyes to hear the prayer of your servant, which I'm praying before you now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. I love his demeanor here. I love his, his attitude. God, listen, please. And I, just, I am your servant. I, I am your, I'm, not, I'm not bossing you around. I, I'm just here humbly. If we're going to have courage that honors God, we, we must see ourselves as servants of God. He is the ultimate definer of right and wrong. He is the ultimate definer and setting the bar of what holiness is all about. And we don't stand up for what's right in our eyes. We say, God, is this wrong in your eyes? And we don't stand up for our honor. We stand up for His honor. So make sure God is in His proper place. And secondly, we have to own our own sin. Our responsibility in the wrongs that we face. That's what Nehemiah did. Look at again verse 6. I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, 
nor the ordinances which you commanded your servants, uh, your servant Moses. Yeah. Nehemiah was 850 miles away from Jerusalem. What did he have to do with all the problems that was happening in Jerusalem? Well, what he did was he connected the dots. He realized how he also was a part of the problem. Now, um, he's identifying here with what God said to your servant Moses. That would be the Mosaic Covenant, which is recorded in Leviticus 26 and again in Deuteronomy chapter 30. That God said that if the Israelites would turn their back on him, would not obey him, then he would uh, send them into exile. He'd scatter them abroad. And Nehemiah knew he was in Susa because he was a part of the exile. He was a part of the scattered Israelites because the, the people had turned their back on God. You know, we may not be directly connected to the wrongs that we see around us. But there may be a connection. When we see the things that are going wrong around us, we have got to own our own sin first. Where have we gone wrong? What have we done to contribute to the things that that aren't as they should be? Righting wrongs begins with the courage to look in the mirror and to see ourselves for who we really are and admit before God how we have contributed to the wrongs that are around us. Confession of our sin. And the third part of his prayer and the thing we can learn from is then we can claim God's promises. Nehemiah starts claiming God's promises. Look at verse 8. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of, of the heavens, you're all over the place, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. In other words, God, you made this promise and I'm just just reminding you that it seems like we're coming back to you and would you regather us back to your place, to Israel, to Jerusalem? And then he says this in verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. In other words, they're your people, God. And I know that you love them. I know that you love them. You've shown that you love them. What promises can we claim? Like when we go before God, for instance, we could say, God, I've confessed to you my sin. And I'm just going to claim your promise that you said, if we're faithful and we're just, that you are faithful and just and you will forgive us of our sin and you'll actually cleanse us from that unrighteousness. I'm just claiming that promise, God. Or we might say, God, you said in James 1.5 that if we lack wisdom, we should ask and you'd give it to us and we need wisdom at this moment. We might claim Philippians, I think it's 4.19. It says, you know, that God will supply us with all that we need. God, these are the things that I think I need before you and I just trust in your promises that, that you'll, you'll, you'll give me exactly, not what I want, but what I actually need. And we might be a bit anxious about stuff, a bit fearful about stuff, but we'll say, God, you say that if we pray, if we pray, 
That your peace will come over us. A peace that passes understanding. That's Philippians 4, 6 and 7. God, I'm just claiming that promise. I need your peace right now. Or Matthew 6, where, where Jesus says, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. That, that He'll take care of us. And that God, I, you promise that we'll know the strength and the power of your love in Ephesians chapter 3. And on and on. There's so many promises in the Bible that we can just claim as we're praying before the Lord and seeking Him for the courage that we need. And always remember, as Nehemiah did, that He loves us. He loves you and me with an infinite kind of love. And then finally, as we're praying, we can then just make our requests to God. What is it specifically that we need? Most, or, uh, Nehemiah was quite specific. Verse 11, O Lord, I beseech You, may Your ear be attentive to the prayer of Your servant and the prayer of Your servants who delight to revere Your name. I love that. It's not just praying by himself. He's got people around him praying. He's been asking other people to pray. Maybe Hananiah, his brother, and others. But he's got like these intercessors for him. Pray for me. Pray for this. And make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. That would be Artaxerxes. Grant him compassion. You know why he's praying for this? He's nervous. He knows that if he's going to do something about the plight of his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, he's got to talk to the king and he's not really excited about that. He's real nervous about it. Yeah. <clears throat> Help me, Lord. I'm afraid. Help me, Lord. I'm afraid. Like Gulliver, tied down by these strings of fear. I, I need courage, God. Might be, you know, I don't know how my boss is going to react, but I've got to talk to her about this. So Lord, I, I just pray that you, you'd have her have compassion on me as I'm trying to say this to her. That she'll listen. Or you know, we're going we're gonna to go to the doctor next week and, and find the results of the tests and I'm really afraid of what I'm going to hear. So, you might say, so God, just, you know, be my strength. Be my stronghold. Help me to feel secure in You no matter what I hear. Give me the strength I need to face the truth. And then, true courage is displayed not through the dramatic Look at how courageous that person is. Not through making it a big scene, but true courage is displayed through humility and honesty. You want to display true courage, you and I? We have to do it through humility and honesty. Look at, look at what, what Nehemiah wrote here at the end of verse 11. He said, Now I was the cupbearer to the king, and it came about in the, ninth in, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So we're talking about four months later. This guy's been praying. He's been intense about it for four months. And then finally the moment happens that wine was before him and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Interesting here. He's been praying all along, but he's still afraid in the moment. He's afraid because you're not supposed to be sad before the king. Matter of fact, if you're seen as sad before the king and he's not happy about that, he can fire you. You're no longer a cupbearer and you lose your opportunity to be used, you know, to talk to Artaxerxes. But even worse, the king could say, I don't like that you're being sad and he could have you killed, actually. He could have you put to death for that. So you can see why he was very much afraid. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. 
Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I love that. In the middle of it all, shoot up a quick prayer, man. You know, oh God, this is the moment. This is the moment. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. So by the way, the fact that the queen is there next to him, this might be a little bit later in the evening. Maybe they're in their own personal quarters at this time. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. You know how long he said he'd be gone? Well, when we get to chapter 5 and verse 14, we're going to realize that he will be gone for 12 years. So, hey, king... All right, you want a definite time? It's going to be a 12-year project. <laughs> and hey, we'll see what happens here. Can you see how Nehemiah practiced honesty and humility? He was afraid. He was afraid because, truthfully, he could not predict how the king was going to respond. So he throws up a quick prayer, and he goes for it. Oftentimes, we're called to be courageous right in the moment. We're not quite sure when it's going to happen, but in our preparation, knowing that we're going to get there, we just don't know exactly when it's going to happen. Like, he was not quite sure. Oh, this is the moment now. This is when I have to talk to Artaxerxes. Four months later, this is finally the moment i got to talk to him. But we have just got to be ready. Reminds me of a, of a story that I read years ago. I found it again, and I, I'd love to share it with you. There was, there was a, 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 a cruise. A, a bunch of people were on a, a ship, and they were enjoying this week-long voyage. And uh, that night, there was a big party going on, and, and uh, everybody's happy, everybody's having a great time, and the captain gets up, and he speaks, and some of the crew members, they get up, and they speak, and, and uh, they're all talking about one guy. One guy who, who was, he's like a 70-year-old guy, and he's sitting up there, one of the guests, he's sitting up there at the head table with the captain, and all the hubbub is about this guy. And of course, he's uh, you know, doing his best to kind of, a uh, little embarrassed, you know, but, but trying to enjoy what's happening there that night and trying to be gracious about it all. And what happened is earlier that day in the morning, a woman evidently fell overboard into the water, and within seconds, this guy was in the dark, cold waters with her, and together, they, they, made, you know, they rescued the woman, and the guy becomes an instant hero. And so, uh, finally comes time for this older gentleman to come up to the platform and give you know, his little spiel, and uh, he comes up to the platform, and with, with what might have been the, the shortest, you know, hero's speech of all times, he comes up with these stirring words. Well, I just want to know one thing. Who pushed me? <laughs> humility. It's called humility. Humility. It's the sign of the few, the brave, the truly and deeply 
courageous. And along with humility is honesty, forthrightness, trying to be as clear as we can with addressing the wrongs that we are compelled to be involved in helping to make them right. Being clear is not easy to do. As a matter of fact, being clear in the midst of courage is something that I think we can practice, that we can get better at. We can grow in this skill. Nehemiah had the skill. Nehemiah was superb. He was brilliant in his articulation of what he needed. Look at verse 7. I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he, may gave, that he may give me timber to make beams for, and he says three things here. That we may make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple. Secondly, for the wall of the city. And third, for the house to which I will go, that I might build my own house. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. The wrong that Nehemiah knew that he had to correct or that he had to be involved in writing, was that his people, the people who he really cared for, were not safe in the city of Jerusalem. And he, he wanted to do something about it, so he says, I need wood for three things I'm going to do. I want to work on the wall and the gates, and secondarily, I want to build myself a home to live in while I'm there for these 12 years I'll be gone. His courage to shoot straight. His courage to not beat around the bush, his courage to not just kind of hint at things, did not come from deep within himself. He knew where this courage came from. It came from God. Did you pick that up in the verse, end of verse 8? Look at what it says. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. I think every one of us wants to be brave, don't we? <laughs> every one of us. I mean, who wants to live with fear, you know? Every one of us wants to have deep courage. But it is hard to live without fear. Yet every one of us here, I believe, can be brave. We can be brave. And so I just want to end today and for right now with three questions that each of us should ask ourselves. Three questions related to courage. Okay, I'm going to ask myself these questions. I want you to ask yourself these questions too. The first one is this. What wrong is God calling me to be involved in writing? What wrong is God calling me to be involved in writing? I mean, it's wrong that people are lost without Jesus. That they're living lost, far from God. It's wrong that people live in lies and dysfunction. And they don't align their lives with the whole truth of God's Word. It's wrong that there are so many abuses out there. Drug abuse, um, Domestic abuse, child abuse, 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 abuse. This is wrong. It's wrong that there's corruption in politics. It's wrong that, that some parents raise their kids in a way that just isn't in alignment with God's will. I mean, the list can go on and on and on. So many wrongs that God is calling us to involve, be involved in writing them. In the Great, Commi uh, Great Commission, Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. 
teaching them to stop living wrongly and start living rightly. So what wrong is God calling me to be involved in, in writing? Second question is, how's my prayer life? It's a good question to ask ourselves. How's my prayer life? When we see what needs to be righted, let's not jump in too quickly. Let's bathe it in prayer. And if it's pretty intense, we might consider fasting and praying. To connect our hearts to the Lord around these things before we dive in. And really and truly trust Him. And then the final question, am I humble and honest? Am I humble and honest? For the deepest courage is generated by wanting to right wrongs. And it's acted upon through prayer and it's displayed through humility and honesty.